How many of you um, are in the Ashes to Fire? Come on, don't be shy. Yay, some even brought your books with you today. Good. Well, we're going to be taking a break from the book of Joshua. We finished chapter 1 last week, and we're going to be taking a break uh, up to through Lent to Easter from that book and uh, going to be preaching toward Easter as we look forward to that celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection. And uh, thank you, Gail, for sharing the scripture with us this morning. It's the story of the temptation of Jesus or Jesus in the wilderness. Um, did you know that there are 756 areas in the United States designated as wildernesses? 756. Uh, the smallest one is six acres. It's, it's in North Florida. It's called Pelican Island Wilderness. The largest is over 9 million acres in Alaska called the Wrangell-St. Elias Wilderness. Congress, by the National Wilderness Preservation System, has protected wildernesses in 44 states and Puerto Rico. And in Colorado, there are 41 designated wilderness areas. So I can safely say there is a wilderness close to you somewhere. Now, uh, it seems that in our world where there's an expand, expanding population, and we recognize that here in the Front Range area, don't we, that wildernesses are rare, wild places, for, that you, kind of where you can get away from the sights, smells, and noises of civilization. You have a, and, and we have a standing um, invitation to explore those areas. Our government allows us to go into those wilderness areas. One settler early in the 1600s said that a wilderness is a dark and dismal place where all manner of wild beasts dash about uncooked. <laughs> Interesting definition. Uh, a few years ago, there was a what they called a reality television program. I, you wonder how real those reality... I mean, with cameras there and camera crews, nevertheless. Um, it, it lasted only a couple of seasons that I knew about anyway. It was called Out of the Wild, the Alaska Experiment. Do any of you remember watching that? I, I loved it. We were living on the coast at the time, and, and I remember thinking watching this because these people volunteered to go and go through this kind of rigorous process in the wilderness, and these were what? These were city folk. Um, anyway, I remember thinking, there were guys in Tillamook that would have paid to do this, you know. I mean, it was like, this would be big fun to live out there in the wilderness and do what these people did. But in the, in the first season, four teams of ten urban professionals, city slickers, were dropped off in the Alaskan backcountry with directions to shelters they would spend the next few weeks in. So they were given a map. They're dropped off, given a map, and they had to find their way to this shelter. It might have been a cabin, it might have been a tent somewhere, something like that. And the series followed these groups through the weeks as they struggled to live off the land at their shelters. And believe me, these guys were clueless. I mean, chopping wood and fishing, and some of them had to hunt for their food. It was scary because they hardly knew which end was the barrel, you know, on the... I mean, it was almost that bad. And uh, it was a struggle for them, a real struggle. 
Um, in the second season, they changed it up a little bit. Um, this time, they had nine volunteers working together as one team, traveling across the wilderness rather than staying in one place. It was like a giant backpack trip. All right? And due to the greater difficulty for, for survival of a large, inexperienced group, again, it was the same people. They drew these people who had no outdoor experience at all, basically. Um, and they were backpacking through this remote wilderness of Alaska. And because it was difficult, and uh, this time they had to find their shelters. I mean, there were things like burned out cabins, airplane wrecks, things like that, that they had to turn into shelters, sometimes for a night, sometimes for more than one night. But because of the difficulty of this, they were each given a GPS. And if they just couldn't hack it anymore, they would send a signal and a helicopter would fly in and take them home and relieve them of their misery. And after the first few days, almost half the, the participants left. Only four made it to the very end. It took them almost a month. And uh, they had, what they had to do was they, it actually took them to some train tracks, and a train came by and stopped and picked them up and took them back to civilization. Well, like people in this reality show, we can choose to go to the wilderness. We can. It's a place to get away to enjoy the beauty of nature, to shut out the sounds and smells and busyness of civilization that sometimes we've had too much of. But there's another kind of wilderness that we can find ourselves in. Nature photographer Ansel Adams said this, A wilderness is not only a condition of nature, but a state of mind and mood and heart. Sometimes we go to the wilderness. Sometimes the wilderness comes to us. So, how do we get through the, the wilderness experiences of our lives? And I don't mean out there in the Rocky Mountains somewhere. I mean those kind of experiences we have had or are having now or will have in the future where we are in that place where it's rigorous, it's difficult, it's not easy. Our text today tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And in this place of solitude, Jesus was tested in preparation for his mission. He was to under, undertake the mission he was to undertake. Wilderness usually involves a struggle. Even if you're you know, uh, I used to take backpack trips, I guess it would be called wilderness. I mean, Hardly ever ran into anybody out there. I used to take teens out there. And I told you a little story last week or the week before about one of those backpack trips. And, you know, um, there's pretty steep, rocky places in the mountains sometimes. I remember taking a couple of sponsors with me one time. And um, uh, it was a husband and wife. And we had this one section. It was probably a mile and a half, two miles long. It was all switchbacks, you know. You're grinding your way up. I, I don't know if the wife ever forgave me for that. <laughs> and she did not, did not enjoy that part of the backpack trip at all. But wildernesses usually involve a struggle of some kind. And whether it is hiking miles through steep, rugged terrain to see the beauty of a hidden mountain lake, or struggling through a personal temptation to find the reward of overcoming on the other side, it's still a struggle. 
But the struggle can be fruitful and powerful and life-changing. So, I want to challenge you this morning, and I know it's not as easy to welcome the wildernesses that we sometimes find ourselves in. And I know it's difficult, and I know it can be barren and dry, or the way narrow and rocky, and it seems like the path is always uphill, doesn't it? But let's face it, life in civilization is easier. Um, There are sidewalks and paved roads, and life is more orderly. Most of the time we know where we're going and how to get there. We like it. It's the easier way. But in the wilderness, we will be shaped by the change and challenge we face in those difficult places. So how did Jesus do it? How did he get through the wilderness? Well, we know just before Jesus is led into the wilderness, he's been baptized by John the baptizer. The Spirit of God, it says, descended on him at that point, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. he just come, Jesus had just come from a spiritual, what we call mountaintop experience. And from there, he's thrust into the wilderness. Perhaps you've experienced something similar to that. One, one moment you're on a spiritual mountaintop, and the next you're in the dry desert of a wilderness somewhere. A spiritual victory followed by temptation or discouragement or heartbreak or trial. So what did Jesus do? Well, first of all, there was prayer. Jesus was alone in the wilderness. And if you look, if you read the New Testament, through the New Testament, what does it tell you Jesus often did when He was alone? He prayed. He talked to His Father. Matthew 14, verse 23, After He had dismissed them, it says He went up on a mountainside by Himself to pray. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, Very early in the morning, While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 5.16 But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And where Jesus was when he was tempted was about as lonely a place as you can find. Uh, Those of us who have been to Israel before, Um, You know, some of the areas that we go through are the wilderness areas that it speaks of in the Bible. And it's wilderness. I mean, there is almost zero out there. It, It really makes you understand God's provision for the people of Israel when they came through the wilderness. Because you're saying, how in the world could they have lived in this place that's so barren? I mean, the mountains are solid rock. I mean, when it rains, the water just runs off because there's no soil to soak it in. That's why I have those flash floods through those wadis and things out there in the desert. And and vegetation is sparse and you would think there's hardly anything living out there and that would be pretty much true. And that's where Jesus found Himself, out in the wilderness. And He was alone. And He was alone with His Father. 
And as Jesus did when he was alone with his father, he, he spoke with him. He prayed. He talked to him. And just think about what we know at this point. Even, you know, it said Jesus was out there 40 days. So he had 40 days of speaking with his father in preparation for what would come at the end of this time. And how critical that was in preparation for what he would face. Jesus had extended times of communion with God in prayer. The next thing we see here that helped Jesus make it through was fasting. Now, there are different kinds of fasts mentioned in the Scripture, but what Jesus experienced was obviously a food fast. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, it says, He was hungry. I know, that's what I think. Talk about stating the obvious. Um, who wouldn't be hungry after 40 days and nights without food? But I think the point that is being made here is that Jesus is now physically depleted and susceptible. You know, it doesn't say Satan came to him after Jesus had been in the wilderness a day, praying and fasting, Satan came. No, he waited till 40 days were up. Jesus is weak, physically weak and susceptible at this, that, this point. And that's when Satan comes, when Jesus is at least physically at his weakest point. But I think spiritually, Jesus was stronger than ever. See, fasting done for the right reasons is a spiritual exercise. It's an exercise in self-denial, humility, sincerity of heart that are, that are all true of scriptural fasting. And from that come the benefits of prolonged communion with God and the invoking of His blessing and aid as He takes us to the next point in our journey, possibly a new spiritual venture in our lives. There is something God wants us to do when He has our undivided attention through a fast, through denial of self. See, I believe that what was happening here in the wilderness was the final test and preparation for Jesus as he entered into his preaching ministry. If you read farther in, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, it says this, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now Jesus was, was actually stepping in to fulfill the mission that God had commissioned him for. And then the third thing that, that helped Jesus get through the wilderness was the Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, we are told to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If you read through the armor of God, you will discover that the only offensive weapon in that entire array is the sword. Everything else is defensive. Jesus knew the Scripture. And I'm sure the Scripture was going through His mind in those 40 days in the wilderness. So when, when Satan came to tempt Him, Jesus was prepared with the Word of God that is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. 
Jesus had an answer for every temptation because he knew the scripture. And isn't it interesting that Satan tried to use the scripture against him? Satan would say, it is written. And Jesus would say, but it is also written. And folks, that's where we get into trouble sometimes. We like to take these little things, pull them out of here and run with that. We don't consider certain passages of Scripture in the whole of Scripture. Jesus didn't get caught in that trap, did He? He had an answer for every temptation because He knew the Scripture. It was a Scripture that defeated the devil and ultimately drove Him away. What's it say if we resist the devil, He must flee from us? How do you resist the devil? You've got one thing to hit back with. One thing. So how do we do it? How do we get through the wildernesses in our lives that we go through sometimes? Well, we follow Jesus' example. We get through the wilderness the same way Jesus did. We incorporate the spiritual disciplines of prayer, fasting, and Scripture into our lives. The things that got Jesus through the, through the wilderness victoriously are the things that will get us through the wilderness victoriously as well. And so the first thing we do when we find ourselves in one of those wildernesses in our lives is we pray. We are told to be faithful in prayer. We are told to pray on all occasions. We are told to pray about everything. We are told to devote ourselves to prayer and to pray continually. Seems like prayer is supposed to be a pretty integral part of our lives as followers of Jesus, doesn't it? Here's a good thing. If, if you're true to these scriptures to be faithful in prayer, to pray on all occasions, to pray about everything, to devote ourselves to pray and to pray continually then when you find yourself in the wilderness, you'll be practiced up already. Or if you aren't practiced up, you may find yourself practicing in the wilderness. Because in this, isn't it interesting that when we find ourselves in these lonely places of life, these dry deserts, or these, or these frozen, lifeless arctics, God somehow has a way of getting our attention during those times. And we begin to seek Him in ways that we might not seek Him otherwise. If life was still good, it was all roses, and there were birdies singing in the trees all the time. You see what I'm saying? Who needs God when life is like that? And that's the danger that we fall into, isn't it? Life's good. Who needs God? The Israelites fell into that danger over, over and over again. The book of Judges is a story of that happening in a cyclical pattern. God's good. Who needs Him? So we pray. And if we haven't prayed ahead of time, very often we'll certainly find ourselves praying when we end up in the wilderness. It's like, how'd this happen? How'd I get here? I never saw this coming. God, I need Your help. We fast. Mm. That's a tough one for some of us. It certainly is for me. I like to eat. I don't like missing meals. 
hey, we Americans aren't used to doing without much of anything, are we? And to voluntarily deny yourself? It's not something we do readily. But the scriptures indicate that fasting may be an essential practice in knowing and accomplishing the will of God. Acts 14, verses 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Folks, this was huge. They were sending out missionaries into the Gentile world. Critical decision to make. And they knew it. So they not only prayed, but they fasted. Acts 14, 21, and this is selections from verse 21, 22, and 23. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So here we have these missionaries that have started these church churches and, and now they have to appoint elders in these churches. Pretty big decision. You better get the right people in place. Because Paul and Barnabas were on the move. They couldn't stay, stay here with these churches. And, but that's why some of Paul's letters address issues. He wasn't there very often to deal with those things in person. So you better have the right eldership in place. Amen? And so there was, it was a, they wanted to know God's will. And to do that, they prayed and they fasted. And then once they'd done that and the answer was clear, they appointed elders in those churches. There are some spiritual battles that will not be won without fasting. Matthew 17. And I'm going to read verses 14 through 16 and then 19 through 21. That's Matthew 17, 14 through 16. And 19 through 21. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, and this is Jesus he's kneeling down to, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then the disciples, and now we're... Jumping back a bit, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Notice how often in these passages prayer and fasting are listed together. It's the double whammy, folks. It's the double whammy. So we need to be people of prayer. We need to be people of fasting. Those are things that help us get through the wilderness. We need to be people of the Scripture. We need to read the Bible. 
Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light from on my path. It's the word of God that is essential in helping us navigate our way through the wildernesses of our lives. Do you remember that? I, I sang this song. I don't sing very often in the office. so I sang this song. Tell me if you recognize it. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. You do know it. The people I sang it to in the office said, I've never heard that before. Well, you have now. It's true. God knows the way through the wilderness. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. It shows us the way to go. Acts 18, verse 28. This is speaking of Apollos. It says, For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So he was combating falsehood with the truth of Scripture, just like Jesus did in the wilderness with Satan. Wow! But I think you've got to know the Scriptures to do that, don't you? I mean, Apollos wasn't saying, you know, I think in there somewhere it says, uh, cleanliness is, I don't know, maybe that's not it. Uh, a penny saved is, no... No, he knew what the Scripture said. And he was able to, to, to debate these people who were trying to refute the fact that Jesus was the Messiah that had come. Here was a man who knew the Scriptures. And just as Jesus did in the wilderness and Apollos did in Achaia, we refute the lies, dis distortions, and deceptions of the enemy with the truth of Scripture. And by the way, you know, there's a lot of there are a lot of folks out there who, who, who distort what the Scripture says. It's true. And we have a lot of people that buy into those distortions because they really don't know what the Scripture says. And so they're taking down some merry path that doesn't end up being so merry at the end. But folks, in order, in order to know what the truth is and to refute the lies, we have to be people of the Word. We need to say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 16, I delight in your decrees, I will not neglect your Word. Amen. So those are those... We follow Jesus' example, prayer, fasting, the Scripture. That's how we get through the wildernesses of our lives. But there are some benefits of coming through on the other side. Number one, we overcome fear. It doesn't matter what awaits you in the wilderness, be it discouragement, sickness, temptation, depression, sorrow, once you've gone through the wilderness and come through victorious, you no longer fear, fear that wilderness because you know what God can do to deliver you. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is follow. That means He's with me. You 
rediscover that God is in that place and that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We can even conquer the wilderness with God's help. We can come through victoriously. Another bad instead of coming through is this. We have a story to tell. <clears throat> a testimony. How, how often in life do we encounter people who are in a wilderness of some kind? And God does not waste our wilderness experiences. Not only does He use, us, does he use it for our personal growth, but He uses it as a testimony for others. We can say, I know. I've been through something like this. That's how I got through it. Here's how Jesus helped me. Here's how I was victorious over this. We have a story to tell. Jesus is faithful. He took me through. And boy, people need to know that. People need to know that. You can get through. There's victory on the other side. We overcome fear. We have a story to tell. The third thing is this. The power of a deeper faith. Or maybe I should have put stronger there. Because that's what these wilderness experiences tend to do in our lives. I think that's very often why God allows us into the wilderness. There are some faith strengthening, some faith deepening that needs to take place in our lives. It's gotten kind of shallow. And so what happens is we're in that place of wilderness, of loneliness, of depression, of discouragement, of illness, of sorrow, of temptation, whatever it may be. And it makes us, it brings us to our knees and it takes us to the Scripture and we get serious enough about what we're dealing with, maybe even to deny ourselves something, like a meal once in a while, and we, and we decide to fast. And folks, I think very often it's what happens in the midst of the wilderness is as important as what happens when we come through. Because it's what happens in the midst of the wilderness that determines what happens when we come through. And it's God working in our lives through that difficulty, through that hardship, through whatever it is we're facing. And the fact that that it just it drives us to seek Him, to call upon Him, to pray to Him, to fast before Him, to, to delve into the Scriptures and look for answers. And that's a good process. Seeking God is always a good process to be in. Amen. And that's really often what happens in the wilderness experiences of our lives. It drives us to seek God. And very often that may be exactly what we need. That drive to seek God, to seek His face, to call upon Him, to, to, to delve into the Scripture, to pray to Him, to, to deny ourselves through fasting. It's to, it's to think just what we needed to, to... That preparation process for what God has for us next in our lives. Maybe there's some new spiritual venture ahead for you. And prior to that spiritual venture, God leads you through the wilderness like He did Jesus in preparation for what He wants you to do next. And I don't know what that is for you. The lesson you need to learn, what He's preparing you for. But folks, instead of the wilderness being something we dread and I just don't want to go there, 
if we are able to face the wilderness and deal with it like Jesus did and follow his example, the wilderness is something we can actually look back on and say, that, that was a good thing in my life. And you know what? That, the people in our world scratch their heads when we say something like that. How can that possibly be? That tragedy you faced, that illness you faced, that injury you faced, that disappointment you faced, that failure, that temptation, that discouragement, that grief. How could that possibly be good? Maybe that's where that scripture that says all things work together for good for those who love and are called according to His purpose fits in. Because it's in the wilderness of our lives that God is able to do a work that He might not do in our lives any other way because we have opened himself up, opened ourselves up to Him in the wilderness like we would not have if the road had been smooth and we were still smelling the sweet smell of roses and the birds were singing in all the trees and shade that surrounded us. Jesus overcame the wilderness. And with His help, we can overcome the wilderness too. If we could have uh, those who will be serving us the elements this morning, we're going to partake of communion at this time. I want you to know that you need not be a member of our church to partake of communion.